0: Episode number 52, Kevin Fraser. All right, cut to edge of stage. Great. All right, color frost. Check. Check. One, two, three. Check. Stand by, please.
1: House to half. House out. Landing keys one, through ten. Seven.
0: Welcome back to the Title Block, a podcast about Canadian theater designers, their history, and their craft. I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz, and this time I have an interview with Stratford-based lighting designer Kevin Fraser. I'm excited to share the first of several discussions about the history of design at the Stratford Festival. First, this 30-year veteran of lighting design at the Stratford Festival has lit over 500 productions since training originally at Ryerson Theatre School in the late 1970s. And I joined Kevin Fraser at his home in Stratford, Ontario in August of 2018. In the future, the past resident designers Susan Benson and Michael Whitfield, who I just spoke to on my trip to British Columbia, will be featured on the show. Speaking of which, the trip was a great success, and I captured nine more interviews with West Coast designers and over 20 hours of audio, aren't you lucky? I'll be releasing them over the next several months, and I'll try to get out more than one episode a month so I can share with you the rich history of theater design in British Columbia. A very special thank you to Scott Miller, Mary Kerr, and Michael and Susan for putting me up while I was out here. The trip would not have happened without all of you. Thank you so much. And also helping me to do that will be with some new Patreon supporters, Mary Kerr and Mark Crawford, just donated at the $5 an episode level, so they'll have earned a warm thank you for supporting the work I do here on the podcast. And a special thanks to Robert Gardner, whose generous donation helped me to get around to Victoria in Salt Spring Island. Thank you for all your support. And if you want to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash podcast and sign up for a monthly contribution. It really helps. But for now, we go to Stratford, Ontario in August of 2018 for my interview with lighting designer Kevin Fraser. Since 1981, Kevin Fraser has been designing lighting across Canada and internationally, including 22 years at Opera Atelier and 30 years at the Stratford Festival. And he joins me today or I'm joining him today in his home (laughs) in Stratford, Ontario, in the fall of 2018. Kevin, welcome to the Title Block.
2: Thanks for stopping by.
0: It's so great to have you here. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time about your career in lighting and theatre. Speaking of which, how did you get started? You you discovered theatre and your love of of lighting specifically or technical theatre in high school, right?
2: Yeah, well, uh, when I was in high school, I was working as a magician, doing kids' parties, Christmas parties, that kind of thing. And I had a teacher in high school, Francis Mavermore, is uh, uh, another son of Dora maver the not famous son. Yeah, I was going to say and it's a familiar name. To yes, people, yeah. yes, indeed. And uh, Fran ran the stage crew in high school and he had a, a course, a, a technical theater course that was being offered that he was teaching. And I took the course thinking it would be helpful for my magic performance to know about technical theater and very quickly the interest in technical theater became more of a priority than the magic act did and on his advice i went to ryerson for the technical theater program there that's
0: terrific now did you uh i've been interested in magic as well since i was very young and i never was never a performer did you build your own tricks or were you using stuff that was bought and mostly bought
2: some 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 built Mm -hmm. um it was uh usually easier to buy, but of course you couldn't afford to buy everything you wanted because it's a bit of an addiction buying more and more and more, okay. more stuff, right? That's awesome.
0: Uh, terrific. And so uh, technical theater, uh, what was the program like when you were at high school? First of
2: all, where did you go to high school? Uh, George Vanier Secondary School in Toronto. In Toronto, yeah. okay. And what was the facility like and did you have lots well, of toys to play with? Or no, was it? not really. Yeah. I mean, we didn't really know it at the time, but sure. it was the uh, uh, cafetorium set up where you would eat lunch and the stage was at the other end of the room um we did a musical every year which was great and a variety show every year we had uh some lighting gear that we would move around and play around with but none of us really knew especially what we were doing you know yeah
0: that's pretty that's a pretty common <laughs> i think so experience i think in in high school uh, great. And then you decided to go to Ryerson. Yep. My alma mater as well. hmm Um, and this was in 19 when? So,
2: started in 78, graduated in 81.
0: Great. So that was only, what, five years after the program had began, I think. I so, think. yes, yes. And what was the program like when you were there? Who was, uh, do you remember who was teaching there? Sandy Black, yep. obviously. Sandy Black,
2: Gene Charles Black was mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Uh, our lighting classes were taught by Shalom Dolgoy oh, and cool. Rob Thompson. Even back then. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have yeah. to bug him about that next time. See, <laughs> I didn't
0: realize he'd been there for
2: that long. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I don't remember who, who else was there. Um, Jim uh, Carnwright was our shop oh, teacher. I right. don't know if you know, remember Jim. Was yeah. he there when you he were there? He was there when I was yeah.
0: there. Yeah, he was just yeah. sort of on his way out, I think, in the middle of my okay. tenure yeah. there. Okay, so. yeah. That's great. Uh, and you discovered that you liked,
2: that lighting was your thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Over the, as, as you know, at, at Ryerson is a kind of a more general program to start with, and you specialize more and more as you get into the later years, and I think lots of people find their path while they're there. That's
0: awesome. And did you design anything while you were at Ryerson? Yes. Like what yeah. shows, did,
2: do you remember what the shows you worked on? Or yes, your we we about? did a, a, the the first show I lit was a show called Dark of the Moon. It was a, I remember very little about it except there was witchcraft involved. And I uh, moved recently and found my lighting plot oh. from that show Great. and looked at it and thought, what what was I thinking <laughs> really? It's kind of crazy.
0: That's awesome. I love um I love going back and looking at stuff I did early on and going, yeah, I didn't know how to draft. I didn't know what were the ideas. Well, I look being at expressed? the color choices, and
2: I had a sidelight primary green from one side <laughs> and a purple from the other side, and I'm sure there was a reason for it, but I can't remember it now.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and
2: then, uh, and so you graduated in '81. Yep. Okay. And what was the first thing out of the gate? Uh, first thing, I went to Canada's Wonderland right. when it first opened. Now I was doing audio there mm-hmm. for the first and last time for me professionally, um, we were, uh, installing speakers as the paint was being, it was going on the buildings and the sod was being put down and all of that stuff.
0: That's awesome. And the, uh, um, I know that was something that was, uh, very not unusual for people to come out of, you know, Humber or Ryerson, uh, right. uh and get hired at Wonderland to work there for the summer. So it must have well,
2: Bjarni Christensen, who was the production manager at the Ryerson Theater School when I was there, got hired away to be the production manager at Canada's Wonderland. So a lot of people who went were his students while he was at Ryerson.
0: Interesting. I think that he was also the production manager at Blythe. Yes, yes he was. Early
2: on as well. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting
0: connection I had not made before. Uh, he's sadly passed as well, Has he? I think. No, I,
2: yeah, I, I think. lost track of him a number of years ago. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah,
0: I think, that's another, I think it was in the Sean Kerwin interview that I did some did okay. some uh, investigation. Right? I think that he passed away just a, just a while ago. But mm. um, that's an interesting connection. That's awesome. And and uh, and then from there, you worked there for one summer, or yeah. yeah.
2: I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I may have the distinction of being the first technician to quit at Canada's oh, Wonderland. Yeah. Actually, I left uh, uh, towards the end of the summer to to go to the Theater Pass Mariah. Right. Also,
0: a proud tradition, I think, at, uh, yes. at Canada's <laughs> Wonderland. <laughs> uh, and then Pass Mariah in the early
2: '80s must have been a very fun place to be. It was interesting, for right. sure. yes. Um, we did a lot of shows with a very small staff. There was four uh, a technical staff of four. There was a production manager, a technical director, a carpenter and me to do everything else. I think we did about 25 shows that season.
0: That's incredible. I mean now they, I mean, they would program, even with co-pros, they program maybe eight or nine shows a year. Maybe with a couple rentals that came in. I mean, the backspace. I was obviously busy with rentals, but
2: that sounds far more realistic to yeah. do it that way.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and were these shows that were being produced by Passmore? These were like it
2: was a most of them were. Uh, there were shows that came and went so fast I didn't even see them, let alone work on them. I would be out of town. We were we were doing a show called Maggie and Pierre, which has had a bit of a comeback now. But we were doing the. It was not the first year of Maggie and Pierre, but we had a, it was, had been very successful. So they put together a second company. Linda Griffiths went off to do it in New York and we had a a second company that was touring the show. Um, and so I would go out to do two weeks of Maggie and Pierre somewhere and come back and a, another little show would have come and gone in that time that I
0: didn't know anything about at all. Sure. It is kind of uh, interesting, I mean, kids' tours happen all the time today with uh, Theatre for Young People, but there's not... And there's co-pros, or uh, mm-hmm. shows that are produced by, you know, Theatre Calgary and Cannes Stage, and they do shows there. But there's not a lot of touring that happens outside of theatres, like, throughout Ontario, but it's something right. that happened all the time in yeah. the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and I guess it kind of dried
2: up with the funding or the changing model I, of I producing. Think, yeah, I think there was a lot of funds available from government sources to do that kind of thing.
0: And what was the... Do you remember anything about the tour? I mean, this must've been something that was just part of the whirlwind of working at Bass. Yeah. Well, we
2: did, we did, um, when they, the previous year they had toured it into larger centers where they could sit down and stay for three or four weeks. And what we were doing was smaller places that they felt couldn't sustain that where they might do a week or four days or something like that. So we went to Regina, we went to Saskatoon, we went to Winnipeg, um, we went to Oakville, right. we went to St. Catharines, we went, you know, a number of places like that for, you know, some even just one and two-nighters. Right. That's
0: awesome. I think it's an experience that we don't have now. Yeah. Right? yeah. I feel like we're missing out, especially with, um, you know, the kind of community that's built not only among theater people, but among, you know, like the general public and theater, like they have shows from yeah. different places to or through all the time. Yeah. Now it's all kind of, I don't know, that's kind of missing, right? Um, and you started designing right away as well. I did. I lit one show there. Do you
2: remember the show? It the was design? Hank Williams, the show he never gave. Oh, right. The, and that was, but who was the director? Well, Paul Thompson, Paul Thompson. directed it. Right. He, there was a, an interesting story that I, I, I won't tell all of because I, I'm <laughs> sure I don't actually know all of it, but the original show had been done with a group in Ottawa, Sneezy Waters, was the, played Hank Williams, mm-hmm. and a number of people, and... Somehow, Paul and the playwright worked out a deal where Theater Pass would have the rights to do the show for a year mm-hmm. as opposed to the other group that had been touring it for a while. Oh. I don't know the reason, I don't know all the things that were behind it. I know there was, I had the feeling there was an interesting story there, but I, I don't okay. really know it. Uh, so, part of the arrangement was we had to have a production mounted by April was a date in April that we had to have a production up and running mm-hmm. so we actually went to Blythe and teched the show there oh, okay. um this was with a a, a performer who uh, had not done the role before mm-hmm. but was very very good mm-hmm. some of the band had been had done the show with the previous production some not and I can safely say it was not my finest moment oh. I was experimenting with a few ideas that uh it didn't work out very well. Right. But we did the show for a few days in Blythe. Then we went to Port Dover for a few days. We did a bar in Seaforth. Right. And then we went on hiatus. The idea was going to be to come back in the fall and do a much larger tour. Mm-hmm. And in the meantime, the guy who was playing Hank Williams went and took his bar exam and went off to become a lawyer. Okay. So the whole thing just completely fell apart at that point.
0: Right. That's interesting. Uh, it's also, this is like, again, resonating with me, my first show out of uh, Ryerson was with Paul Thompson at Blythe. Oh, really? <laughs> I did. He won't come in from the bar. And that was my first kind of out of, uh, out of university show. Um, thankful, thankfully to, um, Leslie Wilkinson brought me in, but, uh, that's interesting. And what, had, you hadn't been to Blythe before. No. Not we talk time. about live no. all the time on the show because I'm right.
2: obsessed with it apparently. <laughs> um, but what was your experience? Like what
0: was your, I mean you were only there for what, probably a
2: week or two? Well, right? we were there for 10 days, but a week of that was teching the show oh, right. and then we performed for three days. It was in March, so it was not their usual season.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, we stayed in a motel in Clinton and it was uh, it was fun. I remember um, I remember Paul deciding that we should have a follow spot right. and there was a follow spot at theater Pass mm-hmm. and I got on a train. Somebody drove me to Stratford. I got on a train, went to his house, picked up his old red pickup truck, right. drove to the theater, got the fall of spot, drove it all back to Blythe, all in the space of half a day or something.
0: That's funny. I think he was still driving the same pickup truck in the 90s. Yes, yeah, I'm not surprised.
2: It had, you know, and in 1981, it had a lot of miles on it already.
0: Sure. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so then, uh, was that. Uh, from April to the fall, you so you didn't produce the show in the fall. No, it just it, fell apart. And then you were there, and then you were done with Pass. Uh, I was gone from Pass Mariah by that point yeah. anyway. Yeah. Uh, any other um, uh, shows that you worked on throughout that year? Uh, after that, as a designer at Pass Mariah, or no, was just it? did one. Yeah. Yep. And then you moved on to
2: Tarragon next, right? Uh, Adelaide Court. Oh, Adelaide Court. Yes, Can I did either. a year as a house, one of two house technicians at Adelaide Court Theatre. So tell me all about the Adelaide Court. Okay, this is sort <laughs> of a missing chunk.
0: People remember it, but there's a missing chunk in Canadian theatre. First of all, where was it in Toronto?
2: It's, uh, well, there is now a restaurant called Taroni that's in that space. It's just, uh, west of Church on Adelaide Street on the south side. It was originally, I believe, this the courthouse for the city of York the first, which is hence Adelaide Court Theatre, uh, the last hanging in the city was done in the courtyard out behind the the building, which keeps you awake at night thinking of that. I'm sure um, it was great. It had there were two two theaters. The upstairs theater was the bigger one. They were both flexible, so you could put seating in this corner or down that side or whatever. Um, uh, the upstairs space I think sat about two hundred. Downstairs was about a hundred. So it was a much smaller space. There were three resident companies. Um Theatre Francais de Toronto was one. Phoenix Theater. They had lost their building by that point and they had an office in Adelaide Court and were using that space. And I forget who the third company was. It's okay. Phoenix Theater. Were they not in um I don't know this was early on. They they had their own theater near Tarragon. Oh, okay. Just on the on the North side of DuPont, west of Spadina, I think, around near Spadina. I can't remember which side. Right. Um. When I was at Ryerson, I, I went and saw shows there. Nurse Jane goes to Hawaii he was done oh. in that space first.
0: Uh, Jim Plaxton, we talked to uh, Jim Plaxton about because they did oh, that yeah. at Pass Mariah later on. I think, okay, yeah, quite possible. Yeah, Well, that's interesting. Okay, <laughs> all these connections are being made. Oh,
2: I know, it's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and uh, it was and a third resident company. I just can't remember who it was.
0: I'll try and find out, and we'll put it in the show notes if I figure yeah, it out. Okay. So that's not a big deal. Um, and then, um, when did the? Do you know when Adelaide uh, Court shut down, or when it was com- it was converted into
2: a? Yes. Well, it it stopped working as a theater while I was working at Tarragon. So it would be 84, 85, I think. I don't think it was in 83, but it might have been 84, 85. It, uh, because I remember there was a big party, uh, sort of closing the theater party, and someone who I won't mention came back from the party with a dozen... Lights in their trunk of their car, which oh, right. we then subsequently used at Tarragon. <laughs> of
0: course, of yeah. course. Well, that's a good. That's. Uh, they're probably not at Tarragon, or well, they could be still. Oh, they at might Taragon. still be there. Yeah, yeah. yeah you under you never the know. stairs, <laughs> under the risers. Um, and the uh, who ran it was it a city-run
2: venue, or was it? Uh... Oh, it's a good question. Yes, I think it was. Um. Uh, I don't really know. I think it was. I think it was a city-run venue. And it just so... there was a guy who was the general manager who I had an impression he was. Connected to the city somehow.
0: Okay. All right, and they just sort of sold it or converted the building or whatever to something else. Yes, I, 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 I lost track. I'll maybe I'll try to find a newspaper. There could be a newspaper report of that. Yeah, maybe. I could probably dig up.
2: It's fun to go to the restaurant, you know, because I've been to the restaurant a couple times, sitting there thinking, "Oh, yeah, that's where the lighting booth used to oh, be." Oh, interesting. That kind of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, and you were there for how long? One season. One season. Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, And do you remember the shows that were produced there under, or were you just doing all the shows that were being brought in?
2: Well, they had, uh, there were two of us, and we we weren't assigned to a particular space. Mm -hmm. Um, It was based mostly on where the French theater was going to do their show, because the other technician, Kim mm Merchiseau, who I think is at York University now, he was much more fluent in French than I was. Mm -hmm. So wherever the French theater was doing their show, that's where he would go, and I would go into the other theater. Right. And uh, mostly, that's how we did it. Nice. And no, I can't remember any of the shows that happened there. <laughs> that's perfectly reasonable. It's a long time ago. It is. Uh And then Tarragon. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Went hot. to Tarragon as an electrician yep. for three years, and started designing some shows there as well. Uh, while I was there, who
0: was in? Uh, was that who was in charge when you
2: were there? Urjo. Urjo or? Curita, yeah. yeah. I originally went to Tarragon as a student placement when I was still at Ryerson in 1980. Right and bill glasgow was still there at that time but by the time i went to work there full time in 1983 it was Urjo, creative. Yeah. Um, that's
0: awesome the uh, it, it is also funny that those student placements don't happen haven't i mean they didn't happen when i was there in the early 90s either so that must have really? been something yeah. earlier on in the pro
2: in the program to have that kind of outreach yeah we used to make two, up our own fun two of us went uh, as uh, to be essentially apprentice asms on a show but it really meant we were doing all the scene changes we were the crew you know right. they called us apprentice asms but yeah. we were the crew yeah. yeah that's awesome
0: uh and how was your experience with urjo how many how many years were you at tarragon i was uh
2: i was the electrician there for three years okay urjo was a lovely man sure. he was very very appreciative when you did good work and he was also uh even later on you know out of the after i was no longer there you know out of the blue i would get a a lovely card from him if he'd seen a show that I had done and you know and he had a really good uh, because of his years as a critic I use the word critic not reviewer Mm -hmm. um, uh, he had a very uh, good eye for things and was able to really see beyond what many people would see and uh, no i nothing but wonderful things to say about him. He was terrific. He actually he almost never directed a show, but I did actually light a show that he directed while I was at Tarragon. Right. Yeah.
0: That's interesting. Now so you say he was a critic. I don't know much about uh
2: Urge's life. He was a critic for oh well, okay, here's where my memory's going to fall sure. down because I can't remember what paper it was, okay. but it, I think it was the Star. We right. might have to look that up. Star of the Globe I think it was the star.
0: It was that was that before, I'm oh, sorry.
2: Before he was the artistic director at Tarragon. Oh, okay. Yeah. And he would continue to do reviews after that, but I don't think it was for the paper. Correct. Or certainly not on a regular basis, but I know he was uh, I would hear him on CBC reviewing things sometimes.
0: Um, fantastic. And uh, and you also started to design shows at the Tarragon as yes, well. Yes, correct.
2: He gave me an opportunity to do initially extra space shows, Tarragon produced extra space shows. Yeah. And then Eventually, main stage shows as well.
0: Do you remember the shows that you worked on? We probably have a list of them someplace here.
2: You probably, yeah, we probably do. Um, the one that comes to mind, uh, we did a production of Farther West oh, yeah. that Duncan McIntosh directed and Cameron Porteous designed. That was uh, a, a particular favorite. It was they converted the theater to be in the round oh. and the, uh, the main space or the, the, main, space the main space in, space, in yeah. the round. Yeah. And uh, the the uh, I don't know if you know the play, but there's a uh, um the final scenes in Vancouver, it rains mm-hmm. and Cameron had done a, a set, which was, uh, basically a dirt floor. Mm-hmm. There's a scene towards the end of act one where, uh, there's a, there's a fight, a fist fight in it, the, it, in the mud by the river. So we actually ran water through the dirt to turn it into mud oh, wow. and then it would dry up over intermission. So by the time we came back for act two, the the floor was dry. And then later on it rains. So he had a trough all the way around the stage and, and water falling. So the actors were surrounded by falling water and rain. Uh, but, but they were dry in the middle.
0: That's a fantastic solution. It was, it was great. Yeah. yeah. I had a rain deck in in uh, Tarragon is kind
2: of a thing that you don't think about happening <laughs> very know, often. I know. And then the final, s- the very end of the play, I don't want to spoil it if anybody hasn't seen it. I don't know if you ever get to see that show anymore, but um, uh, the main character gets in a boat and gets pushed out to sea because she keeps the journey of her life. She keeps going farther west. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the idea. And uh, there was a boat that left right around where the lighting booth is okay. and flew across the, the, the over the audience's head all the way to the other end of the, the, the theater and Delightful. lights dimming out as it was, So it was a blackout by the time she got to the other end. That's a great, Oh, it was a great show. That's a yeah. great
0: ending. Um, and the mud, tell me about how the mud worked. And this is just like, I'm not sure if you remember how they, like, how did they get dry over the, was it the type of material? They were yeah, using? it was the type
2: of material. I yeah. don't remember the details. I remember there was a lot of experimentation with different type of material until right. we could, uh, uh, figure out exactly what worked best.
0: That's fantastic. Um, and then uh, Duncan MacIntosh and Cameron Porteous are, you know, big names. Absolutely. I, I mean, how were you? How did you find fitting into that combination? Like as a new designer,
2: a little intimidating, sure. for sure. Both Duncan and Cameron were great on that show. Even though I was the least experienced guy on the team, for sure.
0: Um, that's awesome. I wonder if we can. If were, I'll, I'll look for some photos online. Maybe Tarragon may have an actual photo, so we'll put that in the show notes as well. Mm. Um, and so you had gone to Shaw as an apprentice yep. uh, or as a, an assistant uh, the, the season in, before.
2: Yes, in the summer, the Tarragon season had ended. I went to Shaw as an assistant, I think the same year I was somewhere else, did summer stock somewhere else. And oh. then, and then back to Tarragon as electrician in the fall. Okay.
0: So tell me about that experience. What was the, uh, what was the sort of routine at Shaw
2: when you were there? What year was this? This was 1985. Oh, okay. And I was assisting Jeffrey Dallas, who was the, uh, head of lighting design there at the time. Um, I did assist a few other designers at times, uh, but the shows I was supposed to be working on were two of Jeffrey's shows. We did, um, uh, a play called One for the Pot, mm-hmm. which with Heath Lambert's mm-hmm. plays multiple twin brothers. I think that he, that he <clears throat>
0: cast not cast in, but he did that show a lot after that.
2: And I do know it went yeah. to Toronto. I went to the Royal, Royal Alex, yeah, I think, in Toronto, like, and maybe the National Arts Center. Or something I don't. know. It mm-hmm. did have a life later on yeah. for sure. Um, and the other one was Heartbreak House oh, yeah. with uh, Michael Levine doing the set, and that was a wonderful, wonderful show. Yeah. um
0: that's again correlates between our career. I assisted Kevin Lamont on Heartbreak House on the House. next Heartbreak House. Yeah, you know, they did they did with with uh, um and so how was that experience? How was working with Jeffrey Dallas? First of all, because we don't know a lot. I don't know Jeffrey, a lot about him. Jeffrey
2: was a sweetheart. He had a a reputation for being very volatile and and he could get angry about things at the drop of a hat. Right. I could see when I was there, everybody was treating him mm. with kid gloves because they had seen the explosions. Um, I never saw that happen. I could see that other people were expecting it a lot, but I never saw it. He was, a, a, an absolute sweetheart. Um, and his style was, his style of lighting was, I'm not even sure quite how to describe it, but it was, uh, I think largely intuitive mm-hmm. and, uh, worked very well with what Cameron was doing, worked well with what Christopher Newton wanted as a director. Interesting,
0: and what was the system? Um, we talked a little about this about this in the pre-interview about the
2: system of um, the rep plot at Shaw. I don't yeah, think so that, it's not the same now. Yeah. I was just there this season, and I know it's very different now than okay. it was then. But at that point, it was because it was three spaces: the 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 festival, the George, and the courthouse. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like the festival went first, and it was kind of like okay, there's this big pile of gear. And then whatever the festival didn't want would go to the, whatever, whoever was loading in next. Oh, okay. And then I think it was the courthouse was third would get whatever was left. Yeah. But we spent, when I say we spent, it was the the three shows that were happening in the festival theater, three early openers while I was there. Uh, Jeffrey was doing two, mm-hmm. Sean Dalgoy Dol- was doing one. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of time spent with them with a couple of inkies and some gel books and trying on costume swatches and checking out colors and paint swatches. And, and, uh, it probably wasn't as long as it is in my memory, but it Mm -hmm. seemed to take a quite a long time. Mm -hmm. You also have to remember this is Mm pre-computers. So all the paperwork was done by hand. Mm -hmm. There were two of us assisting there and we would, the plot was drafted by hand, Mm -hmm. pencil on paper. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Jeffrey really liked things to be neat. And so you could get away with a couple of changes, but probably twice a week we would be redrafting that plot from scratch. Oh,
0: my God. That's uh, that's remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes, it is. Uh, it w- was that um, from ha- the entire thing, uh, like yeah. from start to finish? Yeah. Um, and th- was
2: that just because I, of... I, Again, my memory might be tricking me here. but sure. But I know we did it. A number of times right. we just started again and redrafted the plot
0: and was that just to
2: incorporate changes that were happening uh, through production or was yeah that- well you'd you'd have you'd have your rep plot and then yeah. you'd add the first show right. and then when you go to add the second show we'd start again right. right and then you know jeffrey would change his mind about okay i don't want that over here i want it over here and this is going to be a different color and with a few changes, it was fine. But after that, it just got too messy for him because you'd erase something, you could still see it underneath, and he didn't like that. So you'd uh, redraft it. Sure,
0: that's understandable. I, I appreciate that kind of. <laughs>
2: yes, well, and we were, you know, we were there to do what he told us to do. Yes, so that's what we did. Excellent.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Um, anything else about that season that you remember that was uh, that that kind of? I mean, I mean, this is the first time you had done rep theater. Yeah. Oh,
2: absolutely. First time I'd been in a big theater. You right. know. Right with, with lots of, lots of gear. Yeah. It was great. And how,
0: um, uh, how, big, how long were you there? I mean, were you thrown into the mix right away? Like it was, there's kind of a steep learning curve there, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, w- I, I was there for three months. Mm-hmm. I don't, I remember it was, there was still snow on the ground when I started, but other than that, I can't remember that much about how, how we got started. It is a steep learning curve, yeah. but it was also good to see, I think up to that point, I felt that Doing a big show with lots of lights was kind of the same as a small show, just bigger. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, it's a different beast and requires a different set of organizational skills.
0: Right. Yeah. That's, um, that sounds familiar. I remember um, being daunted by it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, what I was struck was with this, you were trying to solve the same problems. They just sort of cost more when you made a mistake.
2: Yes. So you had to be more careful yes with those decisions well also there's the union factor too right, right. because you're dealing with union stagehands as opposed to when you're doing it yourself or you're doing it with a non-union person who uh back in those days you could you know work as many hours as as you as there were in the week without any overtime at all that's
0: right yeah i know we th- we, we we feel <laughs> i'm of two minds or you think back and go fondly when you were doing this out of a. Uh, it's sort of this was sort of a, there was a purpose to it that was kind of driving you yes. forward but at the same time you go how could we work somebody 100 hours a week like yes from yes. An equity standpoint it seems like a good move though we lament this kind of there's this nostalgia for it that i think a lot of people have
2: yeah you know? there is but i think it's good we don't do that anymore
0: yeah i agree <laughs> Okay. Awesome. And so, uh, now, um, this was the first time you had assisted, but then you went to Stratford, yep. um, after mm-hmm. you were at the Tarragon or was it in the summer?
2: Correct. Well, it was, um, uh, I left Tarragon as an electrician after doing farther West, that sort of, it, it was well received and it was a good show. And that kind of said to me, yes, I think I can take a leap and be a designer and leave the electrician thing behind. Uh, and so then the first thing I did was go to Stratford as an assistant. Mm-hmm. Um, in 86. And I assisted Harry Frainer on two shows, three shows, and Louise Guinot on two shows. That's great.
0: Uh, And that is always like, that kind of feeling of leaving the electrician life behind is... Yeah, well, it was, it it seemed like a brave decision at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, it worked out, certainly. It did, yes. (laughs) But it's also not uncommon, I think, as well. Like, that's a very... Uh, that transition is one I think that most lighting designers anyways make right yeah um so how was stratford um like what did you what did you notice about the place that was different from your experience previous year in in Shaw?
2: Um well i not quite sure how to describe this it's um there's a different way of working, and certainly it has changed over time, but it was um at Shaw it was a little more of getting together and working out a rep plot based on the needs of the show that was in front of you or the season, the combination of shows that was in front of you. Whereas in Stratford, it's more of a historically based rep plot that we make small modifications to, to accommodate the shows of that season. Now it has changed since then, but you know, back in 1986, we didn't have moving lights. We didn't have scrollers. We didn't have LEDs. We didn't, we didn't even really have a soft patch. It was a hard patch dimmer, mm-hmm. 120 dimmers with a telephone patch panel in the big festival theater. Um, so it was a, a lot of ways of working that had been worked out over time. And there was kind of an attitude of, you have to think through anything you want to change to that mm-hmm. rather than just assume that you can do better and start again from scratch. Right.
0: Uh, I recall um, one of the scene change kind of tricks that Stratford, uh, and we may have talked about this on the show, but I don't think that we have because I haven't haven't spoken to a lot of lighting designers that worked at Stratford. Mostly it's been set and costume designers, but Mm. this idea of the photo paper and the shutter cut thing. Do you want to describe that process? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
2: Um, At the Festival Theater, you can get to by... catwalk access almost all of the lights Mm -hmm. at the avon theater you can do that for front of house but not anything that's overhead at the old tom patterson theater now demolished Mm -hmm. uh you could not get to anything Mm -hmm. and the studio theater same thing can't get to anything the new tom patterson theater when it's finished will have catwalk access to everything overhead so what we did because there was no there was no moving lights available you Mm -hmm. couldn't just dial up a special here or there or wherever. So you could change the function of a lamp between shows by changing its shutter cuts. Mm-hmm. The problem is you often need scenery on stage to get mm-hmm. those shutter cuts correct. Mm-hmm. And the changeovers between one show and another are supposed to be an hour. Okay. So right. you may, by the time you get to a lamp, you may not have the scenery on stage you need to replicate a shutter cut. So, uh, they came up with this system, um, it, it was in existence here long before I was here, um, whereby you could do shutter cuts in a lamp, turn the lamp off, you get a gobo holder that has essentially aluminum pie plate mm-hmm. and a layer and a, and a photosensitive paper. You put it in the lamp, you turn the lamp on for there's a magic intensity and length of time that each electrician likes, but oh, okay. it's about five seconds, six seconds in that vicinity mm-hmm. You turn it off, you pull it out, and you can see burned onto the paper, the outline of the shutter cuts. Then right. you take that away, you get an x knife, you cut through the paper and the aluminum, mm-hmm. and you have a template of those shutter cuts. You put it in the lamp, you pull the shutter cuts out. Mm-hmm. With any luck at all, you don't see anything change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in practice, it kind of depends who you have cutting your, and, and how much experience they have. There are some electricians we have that are very good, and they're bang on 90% of the time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to send them back. Sometimes you have to shoot them again. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you can fix it by putting a little muffler tape if mm-hmm. the shutter's a little too far out, or you take an exacto knife to it. And sometimes the angle's off a little bit. Or and, and evaluating those as a designer, you go, "Is this good enough? Right. Is it okay?" You know, knowing that the go there's a little bit of play in the gobo slot anyway, so the odds of you getting a shutter lined up exactly every time are pretty minimal anyway. But you can get close. And that's it unfortunately they don't make the photosensitive paper anymore and we're working on a back stock one of the stagehands found some on ebay a few years back and we're working our way through that stock now i don't know what's going to happen when it runs out
0: i didn't realize you guys were still doing it but that's um oh yeah that's an awesome story and who so who developed that who came up with that i have idea? no idea I, no?
2: It, it was uh, uh, my guess would be one of the electricians but i don't really know yeah um
0: still incredible i think um I don't want to go too far into the future, but um, the, how long did that process take at the time? I mean, that, uh, I mean, focusing is, is one, is one, you know, is a certain, like takes, takes a bunch of time, but then to have to rep the show, like, did you put off a block of time after you focused everything? Then that would be like a four hour call to, to yeah, figure out the, yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. Well,
2: it's the, the rep plot goes in first okay. and gets focused. Now, Bear in mind, we're not just photo templating the rep plot, but also lights from other shows are available for uh, use as well. Okay. So you could take a special that somebody hung for a previous show, make a template of their shutter cuts for them, mm-hmm. and then change the shutter cuts and make a template for yourself as well.
0: So as long as you didn't have to refocus the lamp, like change the yoke or tilt yes, the you could do that.
2: Correct. And it, it's um, it's a, usually a four hour call outside of the focus for the show.
0: Right. Um that's awesome. Uh and and um at the time there was a head of lighting design. Yeah. Michael Whitfield. Michael Whitfield whom uh, I'm happy to announce that we'll be talking to that I'll be talking to over Christmas. Excellent. Uh, this year uh with the Christmas break. Uh so we'll get his kind of view of what how that all kind of developed. Yes, I
2: hope it doesn't contradict mine too much. You know, <laughs>
0: Memory is a funny thing, it's right? True. It's true, very true. It is, it is malleable.
2: He would be able to tell you who came up with that idea. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, i well, hardly
0: wait. Um, that's excellent. So you were there for three seasons at Stratford.
2: Uh, Sorry. A, uh, well, no, 30 seasons. Sorry, 30 seasons. as an assistant, yeah. just two seasons. Two seasons. Yes, correct. Awesome. Uh, the second season was 1988. I was not there in 1987. In 88, I assisted Louise Guinot at the what was then called the third stage, uh, a Robin Phillips Young Company. Season down oh, there, great. the company that then became Soul Pepper afterwards. Oh right, there's a connection I had I had
0: i had forgotten <laughs> about as well. Um, so did you? Who was the who was in charge? Like who were the other people you were working with? Who was in charge of the uh, the festival at the time? Was it Rob Phillips, or was
2: it no um, no? Um, when I first started there, oh, I might get the order wrong. Um, John Neville, I believe, was the artistic director. And then David William, but I, I might have that backwards. Right.
0: John Neville's name is very familiar to me from high school. No, it was John Neville first. That's right. Okay. Um, great. And, um, uh, anything you remember about the shows you were working on that, that, uh, that you want to talk about or is that?
2: Um, well, the first year we did a really interesting production of Pericles that Richard Azunian directed, um, There was, uh, that was the first season they did a musical that was not, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan. I didn't work on it, but it was the boys from Syracuse, which is based on comedy of errors. Um, yeah, no, that's about it. Yeah. Um, terrific. So, uh, when did you first design at Stratford? Uh, 1989. Okay. Uh, So not that far after starting as an assistant. I assisted in 88 and then they, uh, uh, in eighty seven and eighty eight Robin Phillips had a young company in the third stage, which was basically his thing. He was kind of ran that show in nineteen eighty nine They decided to again that's above my pay grade to know why these things are decided, but Bernie Hopkins came in to direct the young company, and the decision was made that nobody who was involved the previous with the previous young companies would wow. be involved. Fortunately I don't think he knew that I had actually assisted there with Robin so but I had worked with Bernie in another theater right. he knew me so I was presented as an option to light the two shows he was doing and he said yeah absolutely and that was how it started right that's incredible uh, and so it's uh also I don't know how unusual that is it
0: seems like it's a pretty um Pretty typical way people start at Stratford, right? They start as assisting, and then they get to know people, and then
2: yeah, not everybody who assists gets to do shows, sure. but many do. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, and what was that experience like? I mean, you'd already been there for a few years, so it wasn't wasn't like you were brand new? But no, you know, how but it is.
2: Worked. I was, I think, a little cocky at the beginning, thinking it was easier than it was going to be. Um, I do remember distinctly uh, uh, the opening night of *Love's Labour's Lost*, which was the first show to open that I did learned a couple of interesting lessons. One is that I don't like going to opening nights, um, because, and the other is when you're working in a thruster in the round, you really have to get around and sit in a lot of different places. Now I had done that, but I ended up at opening night sitting in a group of seats right over the VOM entrance Mm -hmm. that I had not actually seen the show from. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting there with the director of the show the incoming artistic director and the outgoing artistic director in the row in front of me and Michael Whitfield in the row behind me. And every cue that came up was terrible. You know, of course I, you know, I think it was just the stress making me think that, but, um, from a practical point of view, I know, I know why I didn't like it. It was, had to do with the way that things bounced off the floor. I'd made Mm. some changes to the rep plot, which were maybe not the best plan. Mm. And, uh, things bounced off the floor into those seating sections in a way that they hadn't in other places I had sat right I had been sitting and uh uh so you know every cue that came up I just thought that's it end of my career this is awful everybody's gonna hate it nobody did hate it or if they did they didn't say anything and they clearly hired me back so I guess I was not completely uh but it was a uh, not a fun night for sure
0: I can only imagine I'm stressed out just thinking about it um, what was the, what were the things you were working on in the winter that you remember that were important, uh, kind of milestones, uh, in your career, if, if any?
2: Well, right around that time would have been when I was starting with Opera Atelier. Oh, right. I was with them for a number of years. Yeah. Um, uh, Theatre Aquarius started around then. i have in Hamilton. I've done shows most seasons between from then till a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, that's great. Well, let's talk about Opera Italia. And Terracon as well, of and course. Tar- and, yeah, and, yeah and, where you continue to work there. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, let's talk about Opera Italia, because I think that's an interesting story as well. Um, you were, um, you started there right from the beginning.
2: Almost the beginning. They okay. they had been in existence for a couple of years before I started with them in 80, 1988. Okay. They were, through a weird combination of circumstances, they uh, um, got their hands on the manuscript of an opera, a one-act opera called Mirtis. Mm-hmm by Rameau that had never been produced he was the court composer for one of the louis i probably should know which one and uh, he died before it was uh performed so they didn't perform it The manuscript was lost found in a library in paris by someone known to marshall pinkowski who's the and Jeanette zing who are the artistic directors um he offered it to them to produce before it got published, which they did. They decided that up till that time they had been doing shows in the, uh, uh art gallery courtyard at the art gallery or museum. I can't remember if it's ROM or the art gallery. I wasn't involved with that. Okay. They rented Macmillan theater at university of Toronto mm-hmm. and decided they needed someone to come in and do the lighting for that. They also, uh, one of the things about Macmillan theater, which I think is still true today is that, when the school does a show, it's a non-union space. When you rent it, it's a union space. Right. So it's actually a union theater with no house crew, which right. makes for an interesting situation. Yeah. Uh, so they realized they needed uh, people to who had a little more experience with that. So I came in to do that show. They brought in a stage manager and a production manager as well. That's
0: great. Um, and what was the original intent? So they had, uh, my understanding is that uh, they had focused on the
2: period kind of nature of these Baroque opera that they were doing. Correct. Uh, Our mandate initially, it it changed over time, but initially we were trying to make it look as if the show were lit by candlelight. Now, if you just light a show by candlelight, it it doesn't work for modern audiences. At the time the operas were originally produced, there would have been a large uh, chandelier Mm. over the audience. The idea of house lights going out was still a hundred years away or more. like it
0: was Wagner who did that. In the I first think you're day. right, yeah, yes.
2: Yeah. Um, so there been there would have been some light coming from the auditorium. Footlights were a big deal. Mm-hmm. They used to do, uh, I did a little research about Baroque lighting because I wanted to know what they did so we could figure out how to replicate it. Uh, they had little uh, troughs of water where the footlights were. And the footlights were candles floating on cork so if they fell over they'd be self-extinguishing oh, right. in the water which is an important thing <laughs> yeah and the, and the theater largely made of wood of wood, and, yes yeah. absolutely and uh and they would have candles going up the uh the side the legs so behind each set of legs it would be little shelves with candles on them so they get a little bit of illumination that way on the whole they were even experimenting with color they had these little glass things that would go over a oh. candle that was like, uh, you could think of it as like a little bowl with a tube up the center made out of glass. So you could fill it with a liquid mm. and have the candle in the middle and they would dye the liquid different colors and put that over the candles uh-huh. to get some different colors. Right. I imagine a snap blackout might be a little tricky though with all those candles. Yeah, you need a big fan or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And there'd be somebody running around trimming the wicks on the oh, sure. candles through the show. Right. Um, so it would not have been a lot of light. They had white face mm-hmm. to try and uh, pull that out. Mm-hmm. So we were doing that with opera at the time as well, a lot of white face. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to try to replicate this, we, uh, we realized pretty quickly that real candles, we did use them a couple of times, mm-hmm. but not really the way to go. Um, what we were doing in those early years because we couldn't actually afford the electronic flicker candles mm-hmm. at the time, but we would have, we had, Uh, footlights which were I can't remember the color R317 or something like that it changed a few times over the years but I think that was it Um, and and I built a the the lighting console there at the time at Macmillan and a few of the other theaters that we went to later on couldn't really do flicker effects so I actually built a flicker generator uh, and uh, plugged them into that so they would just sort of randomly flicker Mm -hmm. and it looked great if you couldn't see the bulbs right? Right. Um, and we do the same thing on the back. So we would have, uh, light bulbs hung on the back of a leg. Mm -hmm. The legs were painted, so they would flicker and you would see them on the leg that was Uh, upstage of that. So you'd know there were candles in the wings kind of thing. Now those were not, those things were not really lighting the performers. Mm -hmm. They were more lighting, but lighting the scenery, but just a little bit of flicker you got from the footlights, on the whole stage was enough to give us the illusion of flickering candles. Right. When you actually put real candles on stage beside that, they didn't flicker, Right. which was kind of... Right. I remember right. once we had two candelabra, and one on one side was rock steady like light bulbs, right. and the other side were flickering. There must have been a breeze from one side of the stage. Right. So that didn't work so well.
0: Yeah, kind of... Isn't that funny you're trying to break the illusion? You have to, like... Artifice is part of the is important to make the illusion complete and yeah. like when you put something i remember there was a carbon contours show that i saw and i may have talked about this on the show um that came to the premier dance uh which is called something else now um whatever the paul fleck
2: or is that that's another no it's something else now remember. isn't it yeah.
0: whatever the demorier the, well, movie, the du-
2: oh the demorier or not the, the
0: demorier sorry the it was the dance theater premier in, da- the premier dance theater, theater. yeah, yeah dance it's, theater. i know it it's something name. else yeah. now i can't remember what it is and they had uh, this in, this extraordinary fade from black at the top of the show, and it gets sort of brighter and brighter, and brighter, very, very, very slowly. And you think, well, that's not that's not 128 steps. It's not 256 steps. There's like there's something else going on. And they actually flew a lit I could not believe this a lit candelabrum from oh, the wow. grid. Uh, they had gridded it. They had lit it. Gridded it, and then they flew it in wow. over. 10, like five minutes or something at the top, or it's f- four minutes at the top of the show. And uh, first of all, my first thought was that was an incredible fate from Black. My second thought was, I hope, I thank God nothing else lit on fire because you were flying <laughs> a flaming thing in from the grid. Um, but it was like something we would never be able to replicate. Maybe yeah. now with LED, I don't know, but you'd need a lot of steps to make that not look like, yeah, like jumpy, right? Wow. Um, ugh, anyways, but yeah, but totally understandable. And so, um, uh, obviously it was brighter than it would have been had it been lit by candles. but Correct, but it was still pretty dim by today's standards. Okay, Yeah. right. And how did the audience react? Or was they, they were obviously buying into seemed this? It seemed to be, yeah, it yeah. seemed to be fine, yeah. All right, and, and you said that you didn't really stick with that for very long or well, for it, many it, seasons. It,
2: over, um, one of the things that happened over time is that uh, uh, Marshall and, uh, Gerard Goucci did many he, he there was a period of years where he was not their set designer, but um, he has been now for a long time mm-hmm. and they were interested in moving in a different direction being more theatrical and more contemporary, not necessarily trying to replicate things that had uh, not trying to do the candlelight look yeah. so much um, that said, even when we were doing the the candlelight look, Marshall was always very uh intrigued when he would see something that looked really great, even if it fell outside the mandate of trying to make it look like candles. Um, I remember once I called a wrong channel by mistake and a bright blue site came up and which of course they wouldn't have had. And uh, he said, Oh, I love it. Let's keep that. You can't do that. You can Oh yeah, yeah, no, we can do that. So, so it, it did move over time away from that, that idea of trying to trying to replicate candlelight. Yeah.
0: And how uh, you guys toured a lot. We did. With, uh, and you still, I mean, Opera Italia is one of these companies that tours a lot still to the
2: day, which is kind of unusual. Yeah. We uh, went to uh, Singapore. We went to Tokyo twice. We went to Seoul twice. Uh, Versailles. I know right. in your chat with Bonnie uh, Beecher, you talked about that. But yeah. we, we also went there in the 90s. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, how, what did you tour with? Like, you must have brought all the candle Nothing. bits. Well, uh, we toured with footlights. Oh, okay. We brought our footlights. That's it. Uh, And then replicated. We would sometimes have to struggle to find the right bulbs to put in them based on the electricity that was there. So we didn't take transformers with us. That's always a
0: challenge. Um, Interesting. Anything from those tours that you wanted that was like you, this was now the first time you had been out of the country doing lighting in Singapore and Tokyo and things like that, right? Yeah, it was,
2: was I mean, it was, you know, terrifying in many ways, but a lot of fun as well. I remember uh, when we went to Tokyo the first time, the theater we went into was a, essentially a concert hall. It was not really a theater, although it had a, a um, the, the ability to do theater style shows or operas. Um, it was built as an opera hall, but hardly uh, uh, an opera. Sorry, I'm gonna back up a little sure. bit. It was explained to us when we were there that in Japan they could find a lot of money for building buildings and not for sustaining companies. So, there were something like a hundred opera houses wow. and three opera companies oh, in Japan, God. which is why they were always looking to bring in people right. to do stuff. Um, the crews there were exceptionally fast. Mm-hmm. We had asked for two days to set up, which is kind of like what we did in Toronto mm-hmm. and We were done at the end of the first day. We spent the second day basically sitting around. They were just unbelievably fast. Wow. Um, I asked for an inventory list for the theater in Tokyo we went to and uh They kept not sending it, not sending it, and this is by fax, right? Again, we're pre-email being very common at that Mm -hmm. point and, uh, email was there, but they, it didn't seem to work out. It was by fax. And finally they sent me a list and they had 1200 lights in this theater, most of which I had never heard of before, right? right? They had 25 source fours and everything else was a Japanese lighting instrument that I didn't know. They had six matching pairs of follow spots. That were different so you could have tungsten or hmi the 2k or the 4k or the one you know but they were in matching pairs they had two fall spot booths that had like six spots in each one you could choose which ones
1: that's full range
2: of panty projectors with every conceivable accessory that kind of stuff and uh yeah it was quite neat the the whole stage had a motorized rake Mm -hmm. so it could be flat or up and then within that, there was a separate elevator the size of a grand piano so they could get the grand piano up from storage when they needed it, that right. kind of thing. That's incredible. Yeah. I no, it was great. It was amazing. <laughs> working in that space. And their electrician had a cute, we'd done the show in, I think it was Marriage Figaro, I can't remember which one was first. We had done the show in Toronto. And he had a copy of my cue list from Toronto. I have no idea how we got it. Nobody would say that they had sent it, but we, in, when we did the opera in Toronto, we started with a, a, a prologue in English. A mm. performer came out and spoke in English, mm. but we decided in Japan, that would not be a really smart idea. So we just cut it. Mm. So <clears throat> we're starting to build cues and I built the cue. I said, you know, record Q one. He said, you're not doing the prologue. I said, how do you know about that? Yeah, it was, it was quite crazy.
0: Uh, I think Steve Lucas talked about some of that as well. Uh, people want to refer back to our Steve Lucas interview when he took the draw boy to Tokyo. Uh, um or to Japan somewhere in japan right um great well, that's excellent so uh um you spent a lot of time I mean, I'm not a big fan of broke opera I, I've enjoyed all the Italian shows I've seen. They're just kind of extraordinary, but um it's not really my musical uh interest um but you've done a lot of it. <laughs> yes, it's <laughs> is it, true. Is it something that, um, this is a, probably a silly question, but um, like they kind of, do they all kind of blend together in the end? Like, like it
2: seems like a did Man, you a very specific genre well, for them. Look? Many do, but there are some I liked a lot. And they, you know, like Dido and Anais is a particular favorite. And I can, if I hear something on the radio from Dido and Aeneas, I'll know it right away, right? Right, right? Whereas some of the others that are... Maybe not so much, but yeah, there's a handful that I really, really enjoyed. That's awesome.
0: That's a, a silly question, but it's my response to it. Um, and it, all the other opera that you've done um, looks like it had connections to Atelier as well. Many of them do, yeah. How, how do you describe, so, um, and, and Opera tay must have been the same way, because like opera tends to work just because it's such a huge scale. You don't have a lot of time in the theater. Correct. How do you change your process? Um, to accommodate that like
2: I, I think you just have to really um, really plan ahead and know what you can achieve in the amount of time available, so a theater might have three hundred lights, but if you only have time to focus half of them, you don 't hang them all you know you've you, you have to sometimes limit yourself based on that, and the same thing with queuing um generally before you go into a theater before I go into theater, I'll know roughly what the queuing of the opera is going to be. Maybe not in every exact detail, but an overall structure will be there so that we're not wasting any time. You sometimes only have four hours or eight hours. And so you gotta, you gotta go immediately as fast as you can. Um, it, it's just really about pre-planning and with Opera Telly, I know I listened to your interview with Bonnie Beecher and she alluded to this as well, that the time is very, very tight in the theater with a, with that company. And again, it was kind of over time learning how much you could do and how much you couldn't do. And and just kind of, you know, when you've been doing it for a while, you kind of look at it, especially if you've been in the theater and you know the crew, you can look at it and say, okay, this is going to take six hours to focus. This is going to take eight hours to focus, whatever and just allot your time accordingly. Yeah. Okay, terrific.
0: Um, all right, so just before we take a little break, anything else? Uh, uh, Drayton, uh, Drayton's another um, company that you've worked with mm-hmm. for a long time, and a number of different shows. Different, um, they're very, most of them are
2: musicals. I've The last 15 years or so, I've done mostly musicals. Right. Probably three quarters of my work have been musicals. And you worked with...
0: Um, uh, Alex Mustakas and the company. Uh, when they were for just a couple theaters, yes, now correct. Are, you seven, said seven, seven theaters, theaters now. It's yeah. Quite an empire he's It is. developed. Out it's great. There, or out here, I should say. Um, uh, anything there? I mean, you started. You were pretty. You were well established in your career before you started there. Yeah. Um, but um, what? Um, anything spe- specific about working with that company in that uh, kind of environment that you want to talk about here or? <clears throat> Or particular well, shows. I mean, they did Cats, for God's sake. Yes, we did do Cats. In 2008 or something. Like,
2: that seems a bit ambitious. It, it was anybody. very ambitious. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's an interesting company, and many of the shows are really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, they have, although it's mostly dealt with now, mm-hmm. over the years, it would be safe to say they had some growing pains sure. because the company grew quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And there was a while while they were growing and expanding where... It was a bit of a summer stock mentality, mm-hmm. like thinking we're a small theater, but we're not anymore. We're actually a big theater right. and there was growing pains around that. Right. They have, uh, two of their theaters are A houses. Mm-hmm. I believe they're the only non-union A houses in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and all but one, the rest are B houses. And then there's one that's, I think, F or G, a little tiny sure. though, the St. Jacob's schoolhouse yeah. theater. Um. For Drayton shows, it's usually about schedule. Mm. It's a very complicated schedule. I mean, Stratford Festival schedule is complicated, Mm. but it's also worked out a long time ahead in great detail. They publish this thing in October, November, they call the master schedule, which will tell you this show is rehearsing in this room from one to six or Mm. whatever it is, right? So it's all kind of worked out ahead of time. The scheduling for Drayton is, um, not worked out in as much detail ahead mm-hmm. and can be very complex because they move shows from venue to venue. That's the other
0: thing at Drayton, right? You're not just designing in one space. You have no. to design it in one space and it goes to Guelph. or. Sometimes it's one space, right.
2: but sometimes it's it moves and sometimes they come back the following year right. in a different space as right. well. And what tends to happen because they're, I guess their biggest expense is in terms of actor salary, actor weeks, Shows will move and change all on the same weekend, not mm-hmm. all on the same weekend, but many on the same weekend. So you could be doing four load-ins at the same time oh. in different cities. Right. So their technical staff is spread quite thin. Right. Um, and that is a challenge, always a challenge. They always make it work, mm-hmm. but uh, it does leave people kind of tired sometimes. Yeah, sure.
0: And, and not, they don't work in rep though. No. They're a no. stock kind Correct. of. Correct. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and so when you're moving, at least you're not having to make compromises with the show that was in there previous. But the spaces must be
2: the, the, quite different, right? Correct. They are. They have three fly house spaces and three. One of the nice things about the non-fly house spaces is they did take the time. that It's a fixed grid over the stage and they're all the same height. Oh, so okay. they did actually. And, and the pipe spacing now is almost the same in in all of those theaters. Uh, So it makes it easy if you have a cut drop or something that's, you know, you know that the grid in this one is 16.6 and in there it's 16.6. So you're, you know, that makes life a lot easier for sure. Especially as a lighting designer, right?
0: You have to change like all your 12s become nines
2: or vice versa whatever when you when you switch over. Yep. Um, And and inventory gets to be a challenge there as well because um, in the spring and the fall, there's really only two theaters running. So Lots of gear for both of those theaters, but in the summer, from sort of early May to Labor Day, all seven spaces might be running, so then there's less inventory. And though they have somewhat not fixed inventory per theater, but some of it is, so some lights will stay in the theaters and some will move around depending. They've always been very good to me when I say I really need this, and they'll go find it at another theater and bring it in. Right ideally i think they would love to have a fixed inventory in each theater there just isn't quite enough to do that with um and also i tend to get the bigger shows so therefore i'm the guy asking for more gear i mean i try not to go too over the top but it's sometimes you just have to depending on the show there
0: are notorious um i don't know I've, i've spoken about this on the show before there are kind of there are certain designers at Shaw of notoriety that will steal from the show that they did earlier in the season and go, you know, just take that. We don't need it. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I need an extra special. Light down, right? And you're sneaking into the show that's running down the street to like take this light down. And the electric's like, what are you doing with that lamp? I'm like, oh no, The designer just said you don't need it for this show. So I'm going to take it for this show. That's happened a couple of times. I know. Wow. Yeah. It's, uh, it's kind of. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um. Anything specific? So, can we talk about Cats? Like, yeah. Like that is uh, the re- uh, the thing that I find surprising is that it's this show, much like Phantom or even Les Mis, that has a very specific look that people yeah. expect when you yes. show up to it. Right. You can do Oklahoma, probably in a couple different ways, and people aren't going to go, hmm, okay. Or Fiddler, even though there's a certain you know environment in those shows, but Cats is very specific. So, how do you approach that from a creative? Um, Well, I
2: mean, I didn't set out to try and copy previous productions of Cats. Mm -hmm. I'd certainly seen it, so I'm sure it was informed there somehow. But um, I I just—the main difference with Cats is that there is so much dancing,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
2: A more traditional musical like Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. you'd have a long scene where you'd do a cue for that, and then you'd have a song. So you'd change the lights for the song, and then you know. Maybe you've got that one cue for a couple of choruses and then there are a couple of verses and then there's a chorus. So you have a new cue for the chorus right, and then, right. you know, and so your song might have half a dozen or eight cues in it and then you're back to another scene, right? And so it's song, scene, song, scene like that. Whereas Cats isn't like that. It's just all songs mm-hmm. and most of them have extensive dance bits. Mm-hmm. So I know I had more, eh, not more cues than any other show, but a lot of cues in that show because often I, I, I like to have In a musical, I like to have cues, in a dance break in particular, Mm -hmm. uh, a cue where the music indicates there should be a change. Because usually the choreography will kind of follow that. Mm -hmm. So if there's a key change, there's almost always a lighting cue for me. Um, In the score, they'll often have little reference marks for dance sections, Mm -hmm. often based on the original production. But there might be a, you know letter H and then it'll be a little term that says something about what that dance section is for mambo or whatever, you know, and it may not be a mambo, but it's just, it's whatever term the choreographer in that original production used to describe that section of choreography. Right. Another clear indicator that you probably want to cue when those things come up. Yeah. Um, in cats, there's a lot of that, mm. uh, like 400 of them, you know? So I, I know there were big chunks of that show where I had to cue every eight bars, right. you know, just oh, because God. it felt like it needed it, you yeah. know? Yeah. It just happened that way.
0: I think I remember it came through uh, Kitchener, uh, the, one of the original truck, not truck and bus, one of the original big productions of Cats. Okay. Uh, came through Kitchener in 90, no, 88 or 89 or something. And uh, we were marveling at the number of cues in that show. I forget what they were, tra- I think they were traveling with, I forget the console they were traveling with, but it was hundreds of cues. Yeah. We thought, how is that possible <laughs> to do hundreds of cues? you know, but... I mean, with that kind of show, I guess
2: it just demands it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine was the uh, uh, board operator for Les Mis in Toronto for a while, and, and this was back with a, uh original light palette. Oh, yeah. And he said they changed discs at intermission. Oh, my God. So they would load up act two at intermission. Yeah, that's those are the days, aren't they? Yeah. That's
0: remarkable. Not good days. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's much better now. <laughs> Hi there. Yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes, if you could, and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like Kevin Frazier. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. Okay, good. So um, let's talk about technique. Okay. Let's start. Let's get the big one out of the way. <laughs> let's talk <laughs> about designing a basic plot um, in uh, the Festival Theater at Stratford. Um, now, not everyone who listens to the show will have been to Stratford, right? the big country. Yep. And we have people from across the country listen to it. Um, it. The original set we have talked about before, and I think it was Pat flood and i who talked about it um because they tried to replicate a similar version of it at guelph as part right. of the thing so it was tani mosevich yep. right her stage and this was in the 1960s that it was or i
2: f- well it would have been no 52 the original stage that's in the was that in the tent yeah okay and, now it may have changed a bit after that, but she was here in 52.
0: Okay. Designing it then. Right from the beginning. Yeah. All right. And so this is, describe what it looks like for people from a basic point of view, like what what the mm-hmm. configuration of the stage is, and then we'll go from there. Okay. So
2: it's um it's actually a fairly small stage. It's about a little under 20 feet wide, and I uh, can't remember the depth, but it's similar. There is uh, steps leading down from the main playing space. So the, the, the main playing space, you could think of it as a, like a square but with the downstage left and right corners cut off. Okay. And uh, then there are steps leading down. Don't ask me how many because I can't remember and it does it actually changes show to show because there are different step configurations that are possible because you can
0: sorry. Because you can basically make the playing stage a bit bigger and fill in those steps. Uh, yes, or? but
2: even if you have steps, you can have a wide step or a narrow step uh, and, and and I have done shows where they have filled in the top step and then continued down so that there's actually one step less. It's a little hard to describe, but so, and sometimes it'd do that on one side and not on the other or something like that. But basically it's steps going down into what we call the gutter, Mm -hmm. which is a little area about a meter wide between the last step and the audience. It's the front of the audience is curved. So it, it changes distance, but roughly that, uh, upstage there is, um, a wall which for a long time was not removable and is now largely removable. So you can put scenery there instead. There are two doors up left and up right. You go up more steps to get to the doors. And then there is an optional balcony that can go in the middle. Uh, Again, for a long time it was not optional and then they made the balcony removable and then they made the walls removable. So, uh, so there are steps leading up from the doors up left and up right to the balcony, which is, Essentially in the center of the room, about bal- the front of the balcony is kind of the, the center of the circle that is the entire room.
0: Okay. And this would be called the inner above and inner below is the upstage areas. Correct. From the underneath the balcony and then the back of the balcony.
2: Yes. So you go out the balcony door and there are steps down. Okay. Up there. And then there were Voms in the house. Yes. Left, down, right. Left and, and down, right. Okay. No center. No center.
0: Okay. Excellent. I think everyone is. Uh, I just wanted to get that baseline because yeah, no, even know. though we have that in our heads, I think that that's the, and it was based on the globe, roughly based on the Maybe globe loosely India, Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, and uh, so, how do you approach? So this is a thrust stage. Yep. Um, I think that everyone learns how to, to to think about a thrust stage in those kind of four points. Uh, That kind of because you've got people from all uh, at least on three sides. Um, How do you approach that in Stratford? And tell us about the original configuration because now we have all these dimmer per circuit and lots of flexibility. But back then, there weren't as many dimmers.
2: No, when I started, it was uh, I believe 120 dimmers, Mm -hmm. not dimmer per circuit. So the the rig there was much more uh, uh, ganging things together than you would have now. Now everything has its own individual dimmer, and I think they're up around 900 something dimmers in there now. (laughs) and, uh, so the basic plot, uh, had a series of areas. Uh, you could divide the stage up into areas. I can't remember how many it used to be now, but it was quite a lot. It was about an area every four feet or so, okay. and they were bigger so that they would cover into the next area. So you didn't have to use every area all the time. Oh, you okay. could use odd numbered areas and it would still kind of work. Right. Um, it just depended what you wanted to do. Um, so most of the areas, when you talk to Michael Whitfield, he'll have a much better memory of this than I will, I think, but most of the areas were four point areas. So they would come from down, left, down, right, up, left, up, right. Some of them were five point areas just based on trying to get shutter cuts that didn't fall into the audience. Uh, So you couldn't quite do it with four. You needed a fifth one. And some of them were three point areas as well, particularly kind of near the center. mm -hmm. There was, there was some three point areas. Um, so the idea is if you brought up an area, you would know that you had front light, whatever that means in a thrust configuration from all sides so that you didn't, you didn't have to worry about the fact that somebody, if you're, Down center, where the table is, the production table is, you didn't, you knew that somebody sitting in the worst seat upstage right could still see some faces, okay? okay? So you're lit from all sides with the basic areas. Now, for the most part, you wouldn't just use that to light anything, uh, because you really, I feel, you really need a directionality Mm -hmm. to happen on the stage. So in addition to those areas, there was a color wash, two colors from up right, two from up left, two from down, down right, two from down left. Initially, those could be, uh, changed between shows. So my show might have a warm and a cool. Somebody else's show might have a lavender and another cool or whatever they wanted for the nature of the show. Uh, so those would not necessarily be symmetrical, but you could have a strong, for example, you could have a strong sunlight kind of colored wash from upright for a particular scene add in the areas to fill so you knew that even people who are not sitting upright where the strong light is coming from they're going to get a great view of everything although it tends to look a little boring right Uh, so if you go to you're sitting down left the strong light is now a backlight for you, but you use the areas so that there's a little bit of face light or or a lot, depending on what you're doing. But you have some face light con- uh, added into that.
0: Is there um, my take on that kind of approach? Would be to. I mean, obviously you want, let's say they go back to the garden a number of times in the show. You want the yeah. garden look to say, this is the garden, so it doesn't change. But you would then change the other looks to, in, a, in a, an attempt at equity to sort of say, well, for this number, yes. you've got a front line from here. From this number, or from this scene, you've got a front line from here. So these people get this look and these people get this look.
2: Yeah, because somebody, I can't remember who, but somebody used a term that I quite like, which is spread the treats around right. so that it might not look great for one scene for somebody, but hopefully the next one will.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, excellent. Okay. And then,
2: um, we're, uh, and, and then on top of that, there sure. were gobo washes as well, oh. because uh, um, one of the things we can do in that theater is get to pretty much every light uh, to make changes between shows. Mm-hmm. So you could have a gobo wash that could be a leaf breakup for one show, mm-hmm. something sharper or, jail bars or whatever for another show right. and you can change the color in every lamp for every show as well now in practice there isn't enough time to change all of them but in theory you can change all of them. Oh, okay. the changeovers between shows are an hour right. and it's usually one electrician for an hour Oh, sometimes two
0: so do you i mean obviously with experience you can go i can change two-thirds of the lamps or i can change all the color washes but nothing else like do you or do you figure that out beforehand
2: well uh When a show goes in, like the, the rep plot goes in first and gets focused first. And then each show as it comes along in the schedule gets added in and you can steal lamps from shows that have already gone in ahead of yours. You can't steal shows, lamps from shows that haven't gone in yet because they're not there. Um, so you, you do work it out ahead of time, but there isn't really, I would say that the designers aren't generally thinking about how much can be done. It's, occasionally the electricians will say, whoa, hold on. You can't do all that. Right. We just don't have time. Right. Um, where it becomes a big problem is area lights. Mm. If someone wants all the area lights to change, mm. that's a problem. Right. Um, if you don't do that, then you're generally fine no matter what.
0: Okay. Uh, and as far as color choices,
2: the area lights were all open white? Well, they were then. Okay. Now, I would say in the last 10 years, that has changed um, up till around 2008 the airy lights were always white. And this was explained to me when I started that part of the thing. And again, it's kind of changed over time. It's not so much this anymore, but one of the things that was uh, told to me when I started lighting there is that if there's ever a dispute between a costume designer and a lighting designer, the costume designer will win Mm -hmm. because they spend so much money on costumes. And it kind of makes sense because when you're doing a show on the basic stage without much scenery, Mm -hmm costumes really have a big impact yeah. and furniture and stuff like that. So one of the things to make sure that costumes are the color they're supposed to be is to have white light available so that if you throw in a little bit of white no matter what else you're doing it'll help to to bring the costumes back to where they're supposed to be. Certainly I can say that it's been a handful of times that I've ever had any issues with costume designers regarding the way the color of the costumes look on stage. And usually that's around a velvet, a a black velvet that comes out and looks green. It's Mm -hmm. like, and and we've worked hard to fix those things generally, but uh, you know, 99% of the time it's just fine.
0: Excellent. That's, that is fascinating. Um, now
2: in in recent years that has moved to be more, more designers want a cooler color temperature in the areas. So there will be some color corrector and sometimes not always the same from each direction. And that in recent years has varied from year to year.
0: And is that because uh tastes have changed I mean, or, or the visual uh, language has changed, or like it's it's funny that you can see that trend? It's interesting that you know in spaces that have that have a season that is not wrapped and that changes, and there's lots of different designers making those choices, uh, you will probably not see these trends or not be aware of them, but
2: to to have this kind of base movement over years to have the lamp get cooler seems certainly I think the idea of using white. Areolites is a, is a much older thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I don't know if it's generational, but certainly it was the thing here in Stratford when I started working and is not so much now. And it's not so much that it's even younger designers, Mm -hmm. but some designers who were not here then have come in who prefer a cooler, uh, a cooler thing. They just find white to be too warm.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's sorry.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, okay, now the I just want to pause for a second and also say, one hundred twenty dimmers is uh, there's something magical about that number. I worked at the Center of the Square and it was built with one hundred twenty dimmers as well in nineteen eighty. Right, 1980. right. Uh, and there are other spaces that seem like that was the number that would top out. Maybe it was an electro controls thing. Maybe it was a strand thing, like ninety six. It's dimmers. probably a strand thing. It's probably a yeah. strand thing, yeah. right? Where you you have so many packs, and the one hundred twenty dimmers is the maximum number you can plug into, whatever it is, with the AMX, whatever the.
2: Oh AML, no! It was, it was, it was be, yeah. Like it was before then. that. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting.
2: Okay, and it, uh, it was probably the biggest rack they sold. Yeah, probably for something as simple yeah. as that. That's yeah. as
0: big as you can get into the yeah,
2: and the telephone patch. And and those were expensive because there was a lot of copper in those things. Oh
0: right. Yeah, that's right. They were really big, lots of big coils, and yeah, lots yeah.
2: of yeah. Um, what was the? Do you remember the console? Was it manual still? No, in- no. Uh, when I started, the it was a, a Light Palette yeah. V6. Yeah. I know they had a Compact One Hundred Twenty or Compact Two Hundred or something before. No, no, no. It was MMS Strand MMS oh, before that. Okay. Uh, but they had a Light Palette V6, and then moved from that to. Uh, AVAB. We right. went to AVAB VLC. Yeah. And then from A-V- now it's ETC. I
0: think that's what, uh, that's what Shaw did as well. They had AVAB for a number of years. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, And then they went to, we were the first year. Again, we've talked about this a bit on the show. I, we went to the Strand 520 series yeah. the year that I started. Uh, and that was a whole... Like, everyone's head had spun because of a different language, and you're not well, doing reverse Polish,
2: and everything Well, I was so. there the first year. I was at Shaw the first year they had the AVAB oh, right. series, and it was much the same thing. People right. trying to get their head around it.
0: Okay. Um, so, that's changed. Now, um, w- uh, when everything was ganged together, they're all getting the same color.
2: If you That's what them, you want. That's what you want. Yeah, okay, I so mean, see. if you needed... Sometimes you'd have to, you know, to get what you wanted, you'd have to really kind of push the system. The, of the 120 dimmers, about two thirds was the basic plot and the others were available to patch for show specials. So you, if you wanted to have a, you didn't have to put the same color in every lamp. It would seem the logical thing to do.
0: Uh, and these were what, 6K dimmers,
2: like 4K? They must've been oh, now I'm really stretching my, uh, yeah, there'd be 6 or 7.2 maybe. Right, yeah. There might have, I don't think there were 12s there. Might have been twelve k. I no, probably not.
0: It makes sense. The idea of having a twelve k dimmer or seven, or even a six k dimmer, these days are like crazy because people are only plugging one lamp in it. Right? I Why know, would you have I anything know. more than one point two? I know. <laughs> you know. Canada's Wonderland.
2: I do shows there, and they still have some twelve k dimmers, oh, wow. six of them. Yeah, so probably psych lights and stuff. Be yeah. plugged Yeah, yeah. There, right? That's yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, the weird thing happens if you only plug one lamp into that. Oh, yeah. It doesn't. The, the curve is not the same as a smaller dimmer with one lamp. In
0: That's it. right. You have to do the old. Uh, um, we you use the teapot or the teapot, the tea kettle technique where you have like a, if you plug a practical into a 1.2K dimmer, it's yes, 60 watts. Yeah. Ghost load. A ghost load. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's called. Yeah. Um, yeah. You need to have to, to spread to, to smooth out the curve yeah. to make sure it curves yeah. properly. Um,
2: it's all coming back. Now we're really going back.
0: I know, right? Uh, ghost load. Yeah. I remember that now. Um, terrific. So um, besides going dimmer per circuit, yeah. Um, uh, Things, lots more things have changed about the
2: yeah, house so, plot. Yeah, absolutely. Done, right? I mean, we added scrollers fairly early on into the color washes, Goba washes. Um, we uh, uh, added some moving lights, of course. Um, now they're up to, I haven't worked in that theater in a few years, but I think they're sitting around two dozen moving lights, roughly. Same thing at the Avon Theater.
0: Uh, and when you guys do scrollers, I mean, there's a big noise problem with fans. How do, I mean, in the festival, everything's up in the catwalk and you've got baffles and things,
2: right? So well, there's... no, there's no baffles particularly. Oh, okay. um, they are up in the catwalks. There is bits of ceiling between the catwalks and the audience, but there's also big holes in the ceiling for the lights to come through. So uh, noise is a big issue in that space for sure. Um, we did at one point change out, change out all the scrollers that we had for more expensive rainbow scrollers that you could control the fan speed from the console and the compromise there has been they'll turn the fans off for uh non-saturated colors and then start you can actually on the old avab consoles you could set it so that it would the fan speed would be based on what color you were in so it would just automatically turn the fan on if you went to a too saturated color um they then that wasn't Still quite enough to reduce the noise in there. So the few years ago we went to Sea Changers. Oh yeah. Um it's a dichroic filter that goes into a source four. Mm-hmm. Um and replaced all the scrollers in that space with sea changers, about a hundred of them or so in that range. Yeah. Um hard to know if that's a good choice going forward because i think that technology may be going away i'm not sure yeah well now the next the
0: next sort of uh replacement cycle will be all led yeah well
2: lamps, see right? at the time we bought the seat changers the leds the luster one was just barely out and it was just not it was not wasn't doing enough. it no 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 but the luster twos are they're great. much better great yeah and uh who know? By the time this goes to air, we may have a luster three because yeah. LDI is on this weekend. So who knows? That's right. Well, I'll,
0: I'll be going uh, doing some interviews over Vancouver and talking to some friends who've been at LDI. So we'll find out okay, about yeah. all that and see what yeah. they were impressed by. One of them is a theater designer, Scott Miller. Um, so like a, he works for a firm in Vancouver that designs new theaters. And okay. Does these kind of specs, so he'll have I'm sure lots to say about that. Yeah. Um. That's great. So that's um. So that's interesting evolution. What about the um, the way that it's designed? Like, yeah, before um, you had told me. So Michael Whitfield was the last kind of resident lighting designer. Correct. Yeah, yeah until right, two
2: thousand and eight. Oh, okay. He was Which the is resident. Pretty yeah. recent, actually. Yeah. I
0: thought it was earlier than that. A mere decade ago. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so now, uh, someone uh, somebody is hired to be responsible for the basic in that theater every year, and it's different.
2: Yes, it is. It's it's a little different from the way they do it at Shaw. At Shaw, it's more. Uh, Uh, everybody gets together and works out the rep plot in Stratford. It's a contractual thing. It's part of somebody's contract So, one of the design, usually one of the designers in the space will be, uh, as part of their contract to do the rep plot. And although they will always, of course, consult with the other designers, it's one designer who works it out, uh, focuses it, makes the decisions, allocates the equipment for the season.
0: Uh, and the, uh, but the same kind of philosophy must exist. You might be doing three or four or five point lighting depending on where it is in the space. And
2: Yes. You know. um, I can't speak to what they've done in the festival theater in the last few years because I've been mostly at the Avon oh, okay. Theater, which is the second biggest space, a proscenium theater. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yes, I believe it's a variation on a theme.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, and then let's talk about how the space can change... Space configuration changes with a musical because the deck has
2: now, because you've got dance and lots more people on stage, it gets bigger. The stage is not as big as it appears. And so you can't actually get a ton of people onto that stage Mm -hmm. uh, unless you put them down the stairs and the stairs go down for a reason because it's for sight lines so that you, so that people in the front rows can see what's going on. So one of the things that happened when they started doing musicals, on that stage is that they would build the stage out over the stairs. So it almost, it's like two and a half times the width of just the stage without those additions. So it creates a huge amount of additional space and huge problems in terms of the basic rep plot, because what works on the basic stage doesn't always work on the extended stage. So we would add in things that were essentially extensions of the concept of in the basic rep plot for the, uh, extended stage, mm-hmm. uh, coverage. And usually that was another 20 or 30 lights when I was doing it. Right. Um, when Des McEnough became the artistic director, he was interested in doing more ambitious scenery mm-hmm. on that stage. So sometimes that idea of extending the stage out over the steps, uh, would happen not just for musicals, but for plays as oh. well. And I can recall seeing some, uh, uh Shakespeare plays that had what I would consider a musical size set on that stage. Uh, again, they've kind of pulled back from that when he's no longer the artistic director. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it, it kind of meant you were doing like doing multiple musicals in the space. Right, Yeah, um, I remember
0: Cabaret
2: was done in the eighties. Uh, there have been two, so there was one in the eighties, and there was one we did in two thousand and seven.
0: Ca- I think did the did the Cabaret in the eighties have a have a revolve?
2: Don't know. I didn't see it. Mm,
0: okay. Um, okay. We won't talk about that then. Okay. Um, I was curious. I'm like, I remember there being a revolve at the festival theater. Well, they have done,
2: well, they have done revolves. I did a filler yeah. on the roof that had a revolve. It was a donut style revolve. So right. it, in, inside and outside would revolve separately. Isn't that nuts at the festival theater? With a one hour changeover.
0: With a one hour changeover yeah.
2: into a revolve. There's a, there's a time-lapse video. I don't know if it's available online, but right. they have been showing it in the lobby on and off over the years of a so compressing that one hour down to one minute to see the uh, see the changeover, how it
0: happens—that's nuts. I mean, fascinating, and uh, and and honestly, I mean, for all the engineering and um, and work that the production design staff does, like the crew there is one of the greatest Absolutely. crews in the world. Really, from everybody from the apprentices on up to the heads of department. There's
2: like a there's you. a lot of experience there.
0: Yeah, yeah. I worked with 357 in Kitchener Okay. Uh, as a young apprentice. I wasn't an apprentice. I was a, what's it called? Permit okay. for yeah. for a few years. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, remarkable place to learn how to do theater because everyone is so, I mean, we were just doing truck and buses out of the center of the square, but they were all right. coming from Stratford to do those yeah, shows. Yeah, it's right? the same local. <laughs> it yeah. was very, very efficient. Uh, and no one was there to screw around. Like it was like getting yeah. stuff done. Um, great. Uh, uh, like the festival and uh, let's talk about the... Um, the Tom Patterson because it's now being replaced by the new facility. Yes, and then you want to like remind us. And again, i have spoken to a couple of people about the configuration of the of the deck there, but um, it was a sort of extended thrust that yes, was a correct. little less convoluted than the uh, than the festival. Right? Yes,
2: it was. Uh, um, and the new one is going to have the same stage. Oh, it's just the everything around it that's changing. Right. Um, so the 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 Tom Patterson stage was depending. The back wall had a couple of different positions over the years. So the biggest, I think, was 59 feet deep and about 19 feet wide. So uh, you could land a plane on it if you were very careful. Yeah, 59 um, feet like enormous. It, it, it is long for sure. And the, the, the biggest challenge from a, a performer point of view is it takes a long time to get to center stage from not being on stage. You know, you got to really move to get there. Um, it, it was a... Uh, I did the rep plot in there for a number of years Mm -hmm. and it was very similar in many ways um, to what we do at the festival. Mm -hmm. The only problem is you can't actually get to lights to change color or gobos Mm -hmm. or shutter cut templates. Have we talked about shutter cut templates? Did we? Okay. Um, And so you had to kind of do a focus and live with your decisions for the season. Um, It's a very intimate space. Mm -hmm. The audience Most of the audience are actually very close to the stage, so it can make a a very powerful Mm -hmm. uh, show when you're watching it. The new stage is, uh, the new theater is going to change all of the support facilities around. So there'll be dressing rooms, there'll be a trap room, there'll be, um, I haven't been involved in the renovation except to just see the plans like everybody else, Mm -hmm. but uh, the lighting rig overhead is going to change to a catwalk system, more like the festival, so there'll be access to things uh, over there.
0: That's great. And it used to be, I mean, in the winter, it was a badminton. It space, was. Yes, right? yes. Yes.
2: Up until, uh, I can't remember the year. The festival uh, actually uh, bought the building, oh, I think. Okay. Did they buy the building? They either bought the building or they arranged a year round lease or right. something. I don't know the the, the details. Yeah. Um, so the badminton court moved out six seven years ago, something like that. Okay. So, have-
0: much the same way as the courthouse in in Shaw was a yeah. in throughout, throughout most of the year was a or most the year, in the winter in the fall it was a event space, uh, but right. but a ballroom kind of rectangle. Right. and then they would build up. Everything
2: came out. Yeah.
0: Um, terrific. Uh, and that was, and obviously you brought in power must've been an issue. They must've had to upgrade the power at the Tom Patterson adventure, like originally, Ye- right? To get yes.
2: I think there were several upgrades over the years. Mm-hmm. It was actually a performance space before the festival existed. Oh, okay. it, there was dance bands would come in there mm-hmm. uh, in the back in the forties. Mm-hmm. There's a recording uh, available of Billie Holiday singing in there. Oh, wow. There's a recording of uh, the Oscar Peterson trio. Mm-hmm playing in there there's a recording of uh uh Duke Ellington Orchestra playing in there so and some of those are kind of pre or around when the festival started right. when the festival started it was also about music not just Shakespeare
0: yes I do recall I do have a, a Oscar Peterson trio uh at the Shakespeare at yeah. the Stratford Shakespeare yeah. Festival it's a album. great God, album God, it's a great yeah. album and that was that was recorded in the Tom Patterson or what was that I
2: think that one was that one I think was at the festival okay. theater but there's another, there is another one I think uh, I Maybe misleading. I I can't remember. Okay, but that is a great album. It's a great album. I hunted it down on vinyl for a long time, and literally a month after I bought it on vinyl in New York, it came out on CD. Yeah, yeah, Yeah.
0: (laughs) of course it did. But still, to have it on vinyl would be awesome. Yeah. Now I'm going to start hunting for that. Um, Great. I'll lend you mine. Okay, thank you. Um, Anything else (laughs) that you want to talk about at Stratford that uh, that was specific about that process? That is, I think we've kind of exhausted yeah probably we have I mean
2: the the my process is a little bit what was sort of taught to me when I first started working there you know so it's not that I have brought this to the table but I learned it there uh the idea of making a strong statement and then filling in with areas around rather than rather than the thing of having uh okay I'm gonna have a warm area from this side and a cool area from this side and that's how I'm going to do my key and fill kind of thing. The idea is you have a, a strong key from a direction mm-hmm. and then you fill from everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, I find it works well. Not everybody uses that style, but, uh, and just the importance of looking at the show from all sides because it is dramatically different.
0: Yeah. And how, uh, I mean, you have, you preview forever there, um, at both festival <clears throat>
2: at both festivals, but, yeah. um, that must give you ample opportunity to move around and, It does, except that there's this funny thing they do in both festivals now, because I was just at Shaw this year, um, where your contract is finished at the third preview. So, yeah, you can come and look around, but there's no time to actually make changes. Uh, Fortunately, there's an extensive dress rehearsal process, so you've seen a number of run-throughs by the time you get to the uh, uh, first preview. Uh,
0: Great. How do you deal at, uh, especially
2: in the festival, with sort of seeing the floor as such a prominent part of every... Well, the trick see. is that anything that bounces off the floor towards you, you will see much much more strongly than the light that is coming from the direction mm-hmm. of the audience member. Okay. So uh, the, the usual trick that I'd use, and it's not just me, but is to have gobos coming from sort of upstage uh-huh. positions bouncing off the floor. Mm-hmm. And so the people who are at 90 degrees to that won't see it nearly as strongly. Mm-hmm. But again, as we mentioned before, you do it for this guy for this scene, and that guy for the next scene, and uh, but yes, Gobo's on the floor, big yeah. big thing.
0: Uh, it is interesting uh, the the because you're you started um, you assisted there quite early in your career, yep. and built up your technique. Um, you know, we all sort of learn our basic way of of working from the first you know for your first few years of our right career yeah uh and i i feel like people who work at the festivals who are, who have worked from the festivals for a long time bring that technique you know, use that technique quite often about setting a statement and then filling in mm-hmm. and having um I remember doing uh assisting Kevin Lamont on the place the thing at uh, soul pepper uh back when i was at the premier dance theater when it was called the premier dance right. Theater, whatever it's called now right uh and even though we were in we we're not well we were doing rep i think we were it was in rep with Endgame, um uh, so maybe this is a bad example because it was not a standalone play but it was still a standalone production but um you were still you still had enough like he used that technique as well to like that show where he would yeah. start with one thing and then all this other stuff would be to come in and layer in on top of it just to be able to see and to, you know, to fill in the, the bits. Yeah.
2: Um, so it seems like a common, well, it's a, from festivals. It's just, right? you know, every show is different, but sometimes you want to have the collection of tools that you're used to working with and that, you know, are going to, that are going to work, you know, like I'm in a proscenium situation. I'm very, uh, I very much like using high sidelight. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I will often just put that in without thinking because I know I like it. The only question is what color it's going to be and how many systems there's going to be, okay. you know, because I know I like it. I like the way it looks and I know I'm going to use it.
0: Right. Uh, I remember doing a show. Uh, I didn't do a lot of opera when I was working, uh, but I worked out at Saga Opera. Saga Opera was a thing. And we had an Italian director in who didn't speak. English. She spoke like it's a dozen other languages, but uh, but he seemed to be enamored and thought that it was so. The most important lighting position for opera was from the box booms, close to the pros. So you had this kind of light coming out at a high front, right? And that he like that was the angle. Like that, he thought for him that was opera. <laughs> like you had to have <laughs> this light coming down on the performer down center or whatever. Um, is there anything like that that you
2: can? Or is this like, is that Well, just no, I would never generalize like that. No, but uh, um, it is interesting that I think people see things differently. You know, I might look at a show or a cue in a show of mine or somebody else's and go, well, that's wrong. It needs more of this. Mm-hmm. Whereas somebody else, like the director, might look at it and say, well, no, it needs more of that. You know, so, and, and we're both looking at the same thing, but you don't always... I think your priorities are different based on what you're looking at. There seems to be a trend these days to not worrying so much about seeing faces, mm-hmm. which, you know, I have had directors come to me and say, you know, we have to see their face. We have to see. And I, yes, yes, I know. And it's because the last person they worked with didn't feel that way, you know, and maybe I'm going too far down the rabbit hole on that, but, uh, but you know, it's, Clearly there there are some lighting designers who are looking at a stage picture and not seeing that we can't actually see their face very well.
0: Uh I would I would concur with that analysis. because uh, it bugs me too. I'm like we have right. I need to see the expression. Well, we're very old fashioned, yes. you and I, I guess. I guess so. Um, great. Okay, how about your general approach? I mean, in, in the festivals, and again, this is not a new theme on the show. Uh, we've talked about the sort of long protracted, this protracted time period between the start of design and yeah. the actual thing on stage. But we're doing a standalone um, uh, show um, that is not repping. I mean, you do do that, right? I mean, yeah, you're yeah. a yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, these companies, these large rep companies. But um, how do you generally find your way into the play um, and, uh, and start working on it?
2: Well, it starts with the script, of course. If there is one, um, I had a, a teacher at Ryerson say, you should read the script seven times. Mm. You may have had the same teacher. I don't know. Um, and, uh, the first time you just read it to just learn the plot. And then the second time you do this and the third time, well, I don't do that, yeah. but I usually do it twice. I'll read the script first time to just get an overall idea of the story. And then the second time to look for any lighting references. This is if it's a play, this musicals, kind of a different story. Um, And then just make a very detailed analysis of that, because most of the time it all comes from the script and the set. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll get a director who wants to do something really unusual. You know, we're going to set Hamlet on Mars, you know, or something like that. And that kind of, you have to throw the rules out at that point. But usually you can get most of it from, from the script and then, and then build a lighting plot based on the set where you can hang lights, what it's going to look like on the set and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Not that we're lighting the set necessarily, but the set determines what angles you can come in from and mm-hmm. the colors of set and costumes gives you a palette to work from and that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And then conversations with the director. Of course, we don't, yeah. don't like to cut them out of the process completely. No. No, you know. um, the, uh, the rehearsal period
0: has changed a lot in the last 25 yes. years. I yeah, mean, for sure. And again, the big rap houses, I'm sure they've had the same kind of experience, right? Where they've got, you used to have more weeks than you have now, but certainly in standalone stuff, it's...
2: Well, Stratford is an example. We used to have this thing on the schedule called Run for Lights, which was where you would, uh, it was rehearsal on stage where they would run the play for the lighting designer. And it was usually the third or fourth on on-stage rehearsal after many weeks of rehearsal in the rehearsal hall. And then you'd go away, you'd do your lighting plot and a week later it would be due and you'd move on from that. Okay. I have now focused shows before that they have rehearsed on stage because the, the tech period gets extended earlier uh, and the start of rehearsal gets extended later. Okay. The salvation in that situation is moving lights mm-hmm. because then you've got a lot of opportunity to, you see something you didn't mm. account for because when you did the lighting plot, they hadn't blocked act two yet. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, okay, well, I have a moving light that can cover that. Yeah. The downside is of course that takes much longer to program and we don't have much longer to program right.
0: yeah uh do you save their time there by building groups and oh yeah all things Gr- groups, pallets,
2: all that, stuff. Yeah, all that yeah. stuff usually here we do a, a here in stratford we do a, a a four-hour call before the queuing session that is called lx tech which can and you know, you may spend the whole time just getting everything to work properly, sure. but you can often spend that time making moving light palettes and and uh, groups and all that stuff. Yeah, groups, all tons of groups.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to. You yeah, can't, you can't freelance that or free. Uh, yeah, freelance that stuff. You have to like.
2: You have to work yeah. on it beforehand. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Um,
0: and how? Uh, I mean, has has the use of moving lights? I mean, certainly once once you have scrollers like looking at the whole kind of trajectory of, of technological change at, at uh, Stratford, yep. um, scrollers certainly made a huge difference. Now there's like 12, yeah. 15 different colors you can have instead of, or it ch- like it changes your changeover process too because now you don't have to change yes. colors in those lamps. Yes. Um, how do you see the introduction of moving lights? Like how long, how long have you had that kind of technology at Stratford and how has it changed? the? Well,
2: we, we started with a couple of uh, just moving yoke fixtures. Mm-hmm. Auto yoke. Yeah. City theatrical auto yoke. Yeah. I think we had some AVAB ones before that. Mm -hmm. Uh, we got a big grant, I think it was in 2006 to buy a bunch of very lights and we bought a bunch of VL 1000s and uh, VL 3500s and, um. One of the tricky things in the Tom Patterson theater, the old one, Mm -hmm. not the new one, but the old one is getting access with a ladder Mm -hmm. was very Mm -hmm. tricky in some places. So they decided to spend the money to say, okay, we're going to put in these moving lights, these very lights. There was eight of them, 10 of them. I can't remember. Um, in positions that are very hard to get to with a ladder. So that kind of made sense. And the other theaters had some as well. Now we're faced with the interesting thing that those lights are now wearing out. Right. And so we have been getting money to start replacing them. Mm -hmm. Never enough. Never as much as we would like. But over time, they have been getting replaced. And I know that, not on my shows, but on some of the other shows, they've been bringing in some LED moving light fixtures as well.
1: Right.
0: Uh, And did that change? I mean, besides having, I mean, besides helping with the the um, the contraction of the rehearsal period, did it change the way that uh, design was approached?
2: Or was it really? Yeah, just I a, think it does because yeah. you 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 leave making decisions till later, right? And you kind of have to, you know. Whereas in the old days, we would go, okay, there's a soliloquy, hmm. downstage left, so I need to hang a special for that. Oh no, wait, it's in the round. I need to hang three specials for that, okay. or two, or whatever. And so you would hang that as part of your plot. And then if they move the soliloquy to downstage right you'd go, okay, I can, uh, I can catch up with that on Thursday, yeah, you know, yeah. whereas now you go, okay, give me two minutes and I'll change that. Yeah. Um, so I think it does change the process just because you, because you have the flexibility, you don't necessarily have to have all the decisions pinned down mm-hmm. ahead of time. That said, it's still a good idea to pin down as much as you can. Um, If you don't think it through thoroughly ahead of time, you can end up in a situation where you have a moving light, moving live, for example, because you decided you're going to use it down left in this cue and then the very next cue you're upstage right and there's nothing in between. So if you plan it out, you can say, okay, I'm going to use this moving light for that cue and a different moving light for that cue and work it all out rather than having to fix it it in the mix, as it were.
0: Yeah, tracking is one of the biggest kind of thorns and that kind of issue although now yeah. most boards do auto tracking yeah like but they still might dark and they still like
2: can't help you yeah. decide to use a light in two places at the same that's time great. or almost the same time you right, know right, right, exactly. yeah
0: that's interesting um and then uh do you find that your taste has changed over the years as well like do you find yourself making different decisions now or or uh, is i'm it really sure almost dependent?
2: certain that i do i'm not sure i could tell you in what sure. way necessarily
0: yeah, that makes sense too. Uh, okay, um, now uh, again, one of the uh, very often we talk about training mm-hmm. on the show, and um, given the sort of amount of technology that's now available, uh, especially in the area of moving lights, and um, but not only that, just the way that uh, like and the use of LEDs and the uh, um, especially well with the less time that you have to sort of figure that stuff out. How do you think that people, what what things in uh, theater school or in your, um, uh, you know, in graduate work, do you think that people should be focusing on in their training? Is it still really the art uh, and the
2: developing their taste that's important? or? Well, I think you need both. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing about lighting design for me is that it's an interesting mixture of art and technology. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can be successful without both. If you just concentrate on the art, then you're going to have trouble implementing your vision. Mm-hmm. If you just concentrate on the technology, you may know all about all the different gear, but coming up with a good looking show might be a challenge. Mm-hmm. So it's a mix for sure. Yeah. You definitely, I think the schools now, um, I do shows at, uh, Sheridan college. Mm-hmm. I did a show at Ryerson a few years back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and, and, and I do talk to people who are recent graduates of some of these programs and I think they're doing okay with covering the technology. I think the students always feel the schools are three years behind, which when you and I went through was not a big deal, but now it is, right? And so you have to stay on top of the technology for sure, but you don't want to get lost in it. I think it's important to focus on art see a lot of shows. Even if you see a show that you don't like, you can still learn something from it. You can look at the stage and go, wow, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. And uh if you see something you do like, you can go, Yeah, okay, I'll steal that for my next show, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. And and uh you know, go to museums and I I do feel that my Ryerson education, I don't know about when you were there, but when I was there there was a little attempt at some art history and things Mm -hmm. like that, but I didn't feel it was nearly enough. Now, to be fair, it was not being sold to us as a design program. Lighting design was one aspect of a much larger program. So um, I don't want to be too critical about that, but I do feel that was a a lack in my education for sure. When I have a designer director come up and say, I think we should really try and make it look like, and they say a name that I don't recognize, you know, I go, okay, yeah, just a minute, let me Google that, you know, to see what and and get an idea what they're talking about. But, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I do think a broader, like, you know, art history, even some architecture, perhaps, Mm -hmm. um, things about color that are not just Mm. what color is this gel or how do you make it out of an led, but you know, there's certainly a broader, art education that can be very helpful Mm -hmm.
0: i certainly like um the fact that they have built palettes uh for the luster 2 that are gel colors Mm -hmm. right you can say go to r51 it's pretty close it actually works now it actually works yeah Uh, rather than having to think about rbgy why and then mixing and everything else or or making up your own colors that are exactly perfect yeah yeah to get that tech out of the way is a really important step
2: yes well and also you know, in some lights, like the with the very light VL one thousands, you can have you have to tweak the values for each lamp sometimes right. to get them the same, and that can take a long, long time. So to have something where you can just call for a color and boom, it's right there—that's great. Yeah. It's I think it's made a
0: huge difference. I I think I I was really um, focused on tech when I first started, uh, and knowing and like fascinated by very lights. You know, yeah. in the in the mid eighties when they were like the king of and had thought up of all the all the they had thought about the problem first uh at least as far as moving lights go uh, color changing and gobo changing and even shutters a bit later but um i don't know now i'm kind of in now mind you i haven't been designing in the last right. five or six years so i had the luxury of going ah, led lights i know they exist i know how they work i don't really care like just make it this color on the psych um Uh, But you're saying that we should, like, obviously it's an important component to know about the differences between the lamps and choosing the right fixtures.
2: Yes, but not just LEDs because, well, I was in a panel a couple of years ago about LED lights. And it quickly became apparent that everybody in the audience were technical director types or uh, technicians mostly, not so much designers. And the big assumption that everybody made is, yeah let's go all led it's great it's perfect and i'm kind of going whoa now hold on i disagree with that because the lustre 2 is a um a big step forward for sure it may be just well i know it's not just me but they um we have to be a little careful because i'm still not sure we're doing skin tones correctly particularly when you have a mixed color cast because you can it, there's uh, there's some interesting articles written about that and how you, if you take LEDs and mix it to white, mm-hmm. like uh, you can match an incandescent uh, fixture and an LED fixture mixed to white. They look the same on a white wall. Yeah. And then you put other colors in front of them and they're different yeah. because they achieve the color in a different way. Yeah. And so I would be very reluctant to recommend an all-LED rig. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a, an example. Macmillan Theatre in University of Toronto just got a big grant to update their lighting system for the first time in a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I was consulting on that with them a little bit. And they wanted initially to go to an all LED rig. Mm -hmm. And we have gone to a mostly LED rig, but we have uh, also specced a few incandescent source fours as part of that rig, just for those times when a, you might need a little more punch than the LEDs can do, but also, you know, there are occasions when you just might want a color that you just can't get, yeah. you know? I consulted with um, or talked to a few other designers who had worked in the space more recently than I have because I haven't really done a show there since 2002. Um, and almost all of them said, whoa, hang on, don't throw away all the incandescent gear. Right. So we kept their existing dimmer system in just for the possibility of renting incandescent incandescent gear if that was what was necessary. And we also spec'd a few... It's not a lot. It's a handful of source fours, but that they have that in the rig ready to go if they need it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like
0: you should, uh, i oh, sorry. It's all right. I feel like, uh, like to double up, like I'd be, I mean, I don't know. I'd be wary about having an entire, um, front light wash made of just led lamps. You maybe want to have like like an LED beside an incandescent and just have that ability to bring up that.
2: Yeah, but that's what theater consultants are pushing now because of the power savings and yeah. the HVAC savings. You can save a ton of money by going to all LED. Yeah. And that's that's what the consultants are pushing, so that's what the vendors are selling.
0: Mm-hmm. The uh, I, uh, Center in the Square just went, again, uh, just because this is where I am, the Center in the Square just went to all LED house lights. Right, uh, they replaced their entire rig. And it, it was remarkable how it looks exactly like incandescent. Shaw just did the same thing at yeah. the festival. Yep. It's just incredible. But that's one purpose. It's serving one purpose. It has one color temperature or one yeah. you know, uh, curve. And that's what you're looking for as opposed to this variety that we get.
2: Yeah, and we're not worried about seeing our friend's skin tones we just need to they just need to read my name in the program you know
0: (laughs) exactly exactly well that's great i think that we'll leave it there anything else that you want to talk about um, um i don't think so i think you've been very thorough we covered all of it eh? all right well thank you so much well thank you awesome that's great That was lighting designer Kevin Fraser speaking to me from his home in Stratford, Ontario in August of 2018. Next time, an interview with the fantastic set and costume designer Astrid Jansen. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and share the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash the You can send comments and requests by email to titleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you do like the show, please go to support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers. Or listen to it while you hang that pair of PAT 123s beside the Color Blast, that Source 426 degree, and that pair of dimmable fluorescents that you keep wanting to think will work this time. This is Canadian Theatre. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on the
2: Title Block.